<laughs> All right, so Romans, right? So before we can even get into Romans, the book of Romans, we have to uh, know a lot of preliminary questions so that we can kind of rightly understand it. So that's what we're going to basically do today is go through a series of questions that we know how to approach it, what it's about. So it's pretty simple, but there'll be a lot to it. Romans is a, is a very detailed book, but as we'll get through it, you'll, you'll learn about it. So very first thing, right? Who wrote it? It's pretty, pretty easy. Paul, right? Paul, he, right. He says it himself, right? So, um, so not only did he identify himself as the writer of the epistle, but even the authorship is identical or internally seem to be very similar to many of his other letters, right? So Galatians, 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, they all have a similar style and uh, syntax of wording and things. So it's really not a, a debate about who wrote the, the book of Romans. It was Paul. When was it written? So be... Um, so it was written at the end of Paul's third missionary journey. You know, as we studied Acts, we know his missionary journey. So that journey uh, took place between A.D. 54 and, AD and 58. So the, if you recall, the first three years of that journey, third missionary journey, he was in, he was in Ephesus, right? So in this time in Ephesus, he wrote, uh, first, he wrote 2 Corinthians. So the winter, then he went over to Corinth, and in A.D. 57, 58, that winter time there, he wrote the letter to Romans. He gave it to Phoebe, uh, and Phoebe delivered it to the believers in Rome. We'll find out about that. That's in Romans uh, 16, I believe. So a lot of the stuff that we're going to go through, we're gonna, I'm just going to give you sort of a, a, a brief summary early on, and as we go through it in the book of Romans, we'll, we'll retouch on it. See who was it written to? Um, so he addresses it to the church in Rome, right? But not much is known about the church in Rome because um, nobody knows how that was started, really, right? Because it wasn't founded by Peter or by Paul or by any other apostle. Um, so most likely it was founded by Jewish believers, right? Um, an author, Thomas Constable, he says this, and I'll quote, he says, um, we know very little about the founding of the church in Rome, according to Ambrosiaster, a church father who lived in the fourth century. An apostle did not found it, which thus discredits the Roman Catholic claim that Peter founded the church. He says a group of tr Jewish Christians did. It is possible that these Jews became believers in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost. Um, and when we went over Acts and Acts 2, we saw that there were Jewish believers there at the day of Pentecost um, celebrating Passover, right? Um, or at some other time quite early in the church history. So by the time Paul wrote to the church in Romans, um, it was famous throughout the Roman Empire for its faith. And we'll see that in Romans 1.8. So again, according to Acts 2, 2.10, Jews from Rome were present in Jerusalem at the Feast of Weeks or Pentecost and were saved. These people would have returned to Rome at some point after Acts 10, they would have had an outreach to the Gentile community of that city. So many, over time, more Jews might have moved to Rome, um, including more believers in, uh, in, in Jesus. So not just Jews, but uh, actual Messianic believers. Um, so Emperor Claudius, 
who was the emperor at that time, he reigned from 10 BC to AD 54, he actually expelled all the Jews from Rome, um, but they had, and that would have been around AD 49, but um, by the time that Paul had written to Rome, the church in Rome, they had returned, right? Many of them had returned. And among these returnees would have been Priscilla and Aquila, who we studied in Acts 18. So another uh, scholar, Alva McLean, he, he summarizes this, and he, he says that on the day of Pentecost, there were godly Jews from practically every country under heaven who had come down for the Passover. Christ had died at that time of the Passover in Jerusalem. They remained for the day of Pentecost, so that would have been 50 days after that, and were there to hear what happened then, including the servant of Peter. That is very likely how the church was founded at Rome. Um, those from Rome who were converted at Jerusalem carried their new religion back home. And then other Christians also went to Rome, and a chief among them were Aquila and Priscilla. And you recall that they, they were with Paul quite a bit in his journeys. Um, so although it most likely started from Jewish roots, Jewish believers, by the time Paul had written the letter to the Romans, it had become primarily a Gentile church. And as we'll see that as we progress through the book. So the way that they would meet was home churches, right? So it wasn't just one sort of temple or synagogue. It was multiple of home churches meeting together. They would call the whole church uh, the Church of Rome. Are we good so far? Okay, so why was it written? <clears throat> so Paul wrote with several reasons in mind. Um, we, we know that um, he wrote to prepare the Roman believers for his, his visit, right? Um, we know in Acts that um, he wanted to go to Rome. He always wanted to go to Rome, but he was always sort of thwarted, right? They, he, you know, the, they were there, wanted to take his life several times. The weather wasn't good. He had to go back to Jerusalem. So many times he wanted to go there and never was, could get there. But the Lord did say to him, take heed, be of great courage, because you are going to go. You're going to end up going. And we just ended Acts with him being there. And even after he was there, he left and did another fourth missionary journey. Um, so first is that he wanted to prepare those believers for his visit. Second would have been to... He wanted to change his base of operations. Remember, the church went from Jerusalem, for him it went to Antioch, right? North Antioch um, in Turkey. So he wanted to shift westward. Remember, he was actually gonna go eastward and the Holy Spirit led him to keep going westward, right? Um, so he wanted to move from Antioch of Syria to Rome. So he shifted from the east and, and the west towards Spain so he wanted his base of operations to shift because um, Antioch, remember, was the, was the base of his first two missionary journeys. Ephesus had also been a, a base of his missionary journeys. Um, that was his third missionary journey. So he wanted to move his base there into Rome. Um, and it's logical, right, for Paul to use Rome as his new base because it was the most influential city in the entire empire. Um, so in order, to, in order to, for the church to constitute his base of operations, he needed to make sure that they were fundamentally, doctrinally grounded, right? Um, so he's giving them here a systematic theological treatment of the gospel um, because, again, they weren't founded by him or Peter or any apostle. So he, and because he wanted to move his base of operations there, 
he wanted to make sure that this church was fundamentally grounded uh, in, in the treatment of the gospel. Um, so that was the third reason. So fourth, uh, he also wrote uh, the letter to resolve some Jewish and Gentile tension. We learned that there has always been tension sort of following Paul, right, in Acts. Um, remember the Judaizers that would follow him around and want to, those that were, the Gentiles who were converted, the Judaizers would follow him around and say, well, yeah, that's fine and dandy, you can believe in Jesus, but you still need to follow the law of Moses and follow the, 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 the prophets that way. And so they were Judaizing these Gentile conversions, which prompted a whole Jerusalem council of Acts 15, right, where Peter and the, the elders, they had to come together and say, no, we're not going to put a yoke on them that we couldn't even bear ourselves, right? So there's this Jewish and Gentile tension about how they could eat, and there was a whole, even Paul had to uh, chastise Peter because Peter would act differently among the Gentiles than he would the Jews, and especially when they ate in certain things. And so there's been this Jewish-Gentile tension, so he's writing for that purpose as well. Um, and so he wanted to prepare the Roman church for these Judaizers who might come there, right, and try to thwart some of the gospel that was presented to them. So we're going to learn that Paul will explain the proper relationship between Jews and Gentiles within the church of God. So John Whitmer is another scholar, and he writes about this Jewish-Gentile tension as a purpose for Paul, and he says, it is related to the tension between the Jewish and the Gentile segments in the Christian community at Rome and a possible conflict between them. Paul was hounded in his ministry by the Judaizers who followed him from city to city and sought to lead his converts away from liberty and the gospel. So the fifth reason, or the fourth reason, was that it was to resolve Jewish and Gentile tension. Fifth reason, um, he needed to vindicate God's righteousness um, by refuting various charges brought against the righteousness of God. And we're going to touch on that quite a bit. And vindicating God's righteousness is very important because in his, in his ministry, we're going to see how man can obtain God's righteousness, right? And since the Jewish nation was promised many things from God, yet the Jewish nation rejected the Messiah, and they weren't receiving the blessings of those things, uh, resting upon God's salvation plan, therefore receiving God's righteousness, is a very important subject that Paul will deal with. And so he needs to sort of set right what God's righteousness really is. It's not by, we know, it's not by works, right? It's not by doing, following the law of Moses. It's not by outward expression. It's really by one thing. And that one thing is faith in the person and work of Jesus Christ. So that'll be a big portion of what we go over. Um, and remember, we also know that Paul, Paul believed his death to be pretty imminent, right? At any time he thought he could die, and he was fine with that, right? He didn't have any issues with that, really. Um, but he said that the Lord has him alive, and that's to gain for the Lord. For me to gain is to die, right? He says, I'd rather die. So because of his imminent danger, um, the sixth purpose would have been that he wanted to make sure that the Roman church had what the Lord had showed Paul, right? The Lord had taught and showed Paul, and Paul wanted to share that with the Roman church before his life could end. So that was another purpose. And then seventh, 
Um, he, he wants to insulate the Romans from false teachers. So not only are there Judaizers, there's also false teachers that come and claim to be Christ and claim to talk in Christ's behalf. So he wants to insulate these Roman believers from false teachers. So even though he will indicate that they're, the Romans are already mature, they need, to be they need to be insulated from this false teaching. So he wants to ground them against not only the false teachers, but the Judaizers. Good? Any, anything to add? Or? Yeah, there's a lot going on. Can you imagine going into a place and saying, I've got all this, this feeling that must have been just bubbling up in him that I've got to get there and I've got to teach these people and this is like the end of the earth, kind of yeah. the end of the mission and do it, you know? Yeah. Yeah, the Rome, I mean, Rome was a very important city because all roads led to Rome, which means all roads go out of Rome, too. So if you can get that crossroads and right doctrine there. So that was his big for focus was that, and, you know, the Lord, he'd been wanting to go and the Lord said, you're going to go. And so Rome was on his mind for many years. OK, so the primary theme. Look at that. We're almost halfway done with that. That's pretty good. <laughs> Okay, so the primary theme, it's that the righteousness of God has been revealed, right? And that people can enter into righteousness not through the law or following the Pharisees, but they can enter into righteousness with God through the gospel. Let's look at actually Romans 1, 16 and 17. We should be familiar with that because we quoted that quite a bit in Acts because that was Paul's sort of primary focus when going into a new city would always be presenting the gospel and it was always to the Jew first. So someone would read Romans 1, 16 and 17. For I know the shame of the gospel for salvation to everyone who believes to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from the gate of faith as it is written so that we could see that that's the theme, right? That's what he's going to really kind of touch base on is that righteousness shall live by faith. The just will live by faith. That the gospel is presented to, to understand how you obtain righteousness. So really the entire book of Romans revolves around that theme. The first three chapters... Um, is going to explain how humanity needs the gospel, right? There's no excuse. No matter if you're Jewish or Gentile, pagan, unpagan, whatever you are, there's no excuse that God is easily seen and easily there. So he's going to explain that humanity needs the gospel. If you don't, if you don't understand why you need a savior, then you're not going to have faith in the savior, right? You have to understand why you need a savior to begin with to believe in a savior, right? So we'll, we'll know he argues that all have sinned, right? Fall short of the glory of God and are therefore under condemnation of God. And the condemnation of God is just because he's righteous. His condemnation to us that he created us is just. It's just that we receive the due penalty of our sin, right? So Romans 3 to chapter 5 explain how people can receive right standing before God through faith alone in the gospel, right? That's the first three chapters. And then the next three chapters, Romans 6 through 8, explain how 
the gospel will work itself out in the believer's life, right? Through, through sanctification process, right? We'll kind of talk about how salvation, the term salvation has three tenses, and we'll go over this a little bit too. But you have justification, the moment you believe or the moment you change your mind towards Christ as the Savior, the one and only Savior, you're justified, right? And that's a legal transaction. It's God declaring you to be, you're acquitted of your sin because the sin has been paid for by his son, Jesus Christ. And so that's the past tense of salvation. And then the present tense is the process of sanctification where daily and moment by moment, you're growing and maturing in the Lord to where you are becoming more like his son. That's the present tense of salvation. And then there's a future tense of salvation, which is glorification, where we will either be caught up with to be with the Lord or we'll die and have a glory, be, when we are resurrected, have a glorified body among him. That's the future tense of salvation called glorification, right? Um, okay, so then Paul will then explain that the believers can trust the promises that God has made to them because he's faithful to keep those promises. And so in chapters 9 through 11, he's going to, again, chapters 9 through 11 are him describing or discussing God's righteousness in the sense that um, he has to vindicate God's righteousness because like we said before, God promised the nation of Israel many things, land, seed, worldwide blessing, right? Yet Israel is not receiving any of those things presently because of their rejection of the Messiah. And so he's going to have to make a case that if I'm telling you as Gentile believers that God is promising you all these things, yet God has promised all these things to Israel and they're not fulfilled, can you trust that the promises that God is giving you are going to be fulfilled, right? Are we following that? That Israel is a major topic because are the promises that God gave specifically to Israel going to be fulfilled or not? And if they aren't fulfilled, then you should not trust that the things that he's promising you will be true, right? But if they will be fulfilled, you can trust that they are for you. So Paul has to vindicate God's righteousness in this scenario, and that's, that's kind of what we'll go through. That's a big part of Paul's discussion of what of Israel. Now that they've received the law and the prophets, the Messiah came to them, they rejected the Messiah. Now what? What are they? Who are they? What do they do? What's the plan, right? Because now it's shifted to a Gentile, primarily Gentile church with promises, but not the same promises that God gave to Israel. And we'll, we'll discuss those things. So then finally in Romans 12 through 16, the last section, um, he's going to provide practical applications in light of these things. So in light of all the mercies um, that you will have learned about and received from God the Father in chapters 1 through 11, um, in light of these things, in fact, let's look at that. Re read Romans 12, I think it's 1 through 3, or maybe it's just 3. Let's look at um, Romans 1, 12, 1 and 2. That's probably fine. So just read Romans 12, 1 and 2. Therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, I urge you to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual worship. Do 
do not be conformed with these, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may discern what is the good, pleasing, and perfect will of God. So if you want to know the will of God, he's telling you how you can know the will of God for your life, right? If you, but by testing, you may discern what is the will of God. So 12.1 says, therefore, right? I appeal to you, therefore. Well, that therefore is because of all the things that Paul is, is discussing in chapters 1 through 11. Now, with that knowledge, that founding, that grounding, what do you do, right? Brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. So some other versions would say it's a reasonable thing. Now that you have received all these mercies from God, therefore, present your body a living and holy sacrifice, because it's a reasonable thing. It's a form of spiritual worship. And then not be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, right? The renewing of your life happens in your mind by what God has done for you. So you have to know what God has done for you and the blessings that he has given you so that your mind can be aligned and renewed and not based upon pagan or fleshly or carnal ideas, right? So that, therefore, is a, is a turning point from now I've taught you these things, now let's figure out how to apply these things in your everyday life. So that's 12, Romans 12 through 16. So service will be the dominant sort of theme of those chapters um, is because of these things, therefore present your body a living holy sacrifice. So service is the application of God's mercies given to you. We still good? Okay, F. So why Romans? What's unique about it? What, what would we be missing if, we, if Romans was not in Scripture, right? That's kind of what we're trying to figure out is what makes Romans different than many of the other books. So there's several unique characteristics. So first, Paul answers a unique question, which is, again, how man can get God's righteousness, how he can obtain God's righteousness. That's a big question, right? It's not through meditation, it's not through prayers, it's not through giving, it's not through service, actually. Service comes as a result of obtaining righteousness, right? Works come as a result, not, you not earn it. So, second aspect of it being unique is that it's actually the most theological of all of Paul's letter, uh, letters. Third, again, it, it, it's, the, it's the most theological treatment of the gospel found anywhere in Scripture. So although Paul, this is not Paul's first letter, it's his sixth letter, chronologically, it appears in the Bible as the first letter. And so that, that we gotta know, that doesn't mean necessarily that the, the, the scriptures in the canon is not uh, arranged in chronological order by date, right? Whoever decided thought that, you know, some people think that it was based upon size, right? Romans is the longest letter that he had written. Um, but um, it also can mean that the importance of the letters, of his letters, goes first. So again, it's not the first letter he wrote, but it is the longest one. It's the most, uh, the longest treatment, extensive treatment of the gospel anywhere. Um, so let's see. Like we said, he, he reserves his theological treatment for the Romans because of the unique place where they were, right? The city, that city was the most influential city in the entire empire. 
So again, if he, he knew that if he could get them to understand and the crossroads of many, many, many people uh, were there, had been over a million people in Rome at that time, it would universally benefit his ministry and the empire all, all around. So fourth unique characteristic, um, it's going to discuss a broad range of subjects, and we're going to talk about that too. Um, so we're going to see natural revelation, sin, salvation, eschatology, Israelology, pneumatology, Christology, all these things are touched on and, and, and uh, discussed in the book of Romans. Romans. Um, and then, like we said, it's going to help us to understand how to live a Christian life. Um, so not only is it um, his longest letter, not only is it the most theological, it's the most formal of Paul letters. It's actually a formal treatise or an exposition within a personal letter. So it's a very formal letter. And he makes very legal arguments about the gospel, about the righteousness of God as well. And like we said, six, it's the longest of his letters. Seventh, we're going to see that he draws extensively from Old Testament scripture, citations, right? Remember in Acts, when he would go and present the gospel, he wouldn't use Galatians, Ephesians, the gospel of John. You know, he would use Old Testament. He would use the law and the prophets to present who Christ is, who the Messiah is. And so he, in Romans, extensively uses Old Testament citations. Um, there's about 60 quotations that he uses in, in Romans. That's more than all the other letters combined. He uses more, far more in Romans. Um, and then eighth, and that this is interesting, the only epistle that he writes to where he'd never been or had not founded or, or even visited at that time of writing, right? So he was in Rome in A.D. 61, as we learn, this letter was written almost three years prior. Uh, the winter of 57, 58 um, is when it was written. So he had never been there and had never visited it, but he had heard about it. So he, he, this is the first epistle, the only epistle that he wrote um, where he had never visited them. And then we know that, uh, and we hope for the same, that in the ninth unique characteristic is that it's had tremendous influence on prominent Christians throughout church history. Um, you know, Augustine, Luther, Calvin, Tyndale, Wesley, Steve, Gracie, you know, <laughs> Patty, every, you know, it's going to influence all of us, right? We, we want it to come through us, right? We're not going to try to go through Scripture. We want that Scripture to go through us and cleanse us and, and teach us and guide us. So um, it's been a tremendous influence on, on people throughout the last 2,000 years. Okay, so G, presuppositions. So just like Genesis 1-1 that says, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, the presupposition is that God, right? That's it. There is a God. He is the only God, right? He's full deity. There's no others. There's no competition, right? So Romans presupposes that the God of the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament, exists and that he is also full deity, right? He's the Holy One. He's the creator, he's the sustainer, he's the sovereign ruler of the universe. So, you know, he says, he doesn't say this, but I say this, if you don't like it, then you get your own universe, you know? You, can, you get to decide what you want to do with it, you know? So while we're subject, as humans, are subject to God's government of the universe, he is the ruler and sustainer, 
he gives us a measure of freedom, right? He gives us a sovereign will, in a sense. He gives us a will that we can choose, right? So we can choose to accept him or reject him, right? That's, that's uh, we can choose to sin or not to sin. We can, we can choose to be saved or not saved. That's, that's the, the magnificence of the creator is that he doesn't create us to be robots. He creates us to choose to respond positively to him. And thankfully, when we choose positively to him, he does everything else, right? He saves us, he justifies us, he sanctifies us, he glorifies us. It's not based upon anything that we do other than just say, yes, you are the one. I, nothing I can do, nothing I can say, nothing that exists outside of you being the one and showing me the way, that's all it takes, right? It's fantastic for us. Not to say to minimize the work that was done. The work that was done was tremendous, right? Christ being the Son of God, did tremendous work on our behalf. Um, good, presuppositions? Okay, H, Romans and systematic theology. So I'll just kind of touch briefly on the many subjects that will um, be brought in in Romans. Um, he makes, uh, discusses 11 out of 13 categories of a systematic theology. So the first is bibliology, right? And bibliology is the doctrine of the scriptures. So, like I said, Paul extensively quotes from the Old Testament. Um, so he shows that scripture is God's word is the final authority in all matters, right? And not only does he, so Paul will, will quote from the three divisions of the Hebrew Bible the law, the prophets, and the writings, right? So he's showing that all three divisions, the law is not any more important than the prophets or any more important than the writing, that Paul is showing that all of them are inspired by God and they all have the final authority in all, in all matters. And so Paul is showing that the divisions that they had put in there are of equal authority. Um, <clears throat> so it's going to mention three of the covenants that God made with Israel. The Abrahamic covenant, the Davidic covenant, and the new covenant. And those three deal with basically all of mankind. The history of mankind is those things. The Abrahamic covenant is a land, seed, a worldwide blessing. The Davidic covenant is the seed will be from the line of David, right? The king of Judah. Um, and then the new covenant is where we are receiving glorification. We are receiving God's uh, spiritual blessings on our lives. So the church participates. The new covenant is given to Israel, but the church participates in that covenant as well. Um, then Romans will deal with the dispensation of law and the dispensation of grace. Okay, so, and then the doctrine of God, we call that theology. Um, so we're going to see that Paul, in his letters, he writes about all three persons of the Godhead. So God is God the Father uh, and presents him as a sovereign God who protests people while giving them a measure of freedom, right? So God, in the, in the majesty and unknowingness of God, he, he has both predestined us to salvation and he has both given us a free will to choose. And I can't clearly explain that because I don't clearly understand it either, but there is that, right? We have... We're called before the foundations of the earth, but we're also free to choose while we are here, right? So, um, and I don't expect to know exactly how to do all those things because I'm not God. Um, 
So let's see. Um, so God is presented as knowable, right? He's not above us where we don't know anything. We, we can't know anything. And nor, knowing that he, and, and Paul will present him as being knowable in the sense that he's not aloof and he's not unaware of what's going on. He's keenly aware. And in fact, he's in sovereign over all things. Those who really want to know the truth about him um, will have been given enough evidence to learn about his existence. And we'll talk about that in the very first chapter. Um, if they choose not to believe in his existence, um, it's not because of a lack of proof, right? The, what does the proverb says? The fool says in his heart, there is no God, right? It's not your mind, he says in his heart. It's a matter of the will, not a matter of evidence or logic or reason. It's a matter of pride or rebellion that you choose not to believe in God, right? The fool says it. So rebellion is the reason why people choose not to believe in existence, not the evidence that's there. There's plenty of evidence that's there. Yeah? Okay, Christology, which is the doctrine of the Son. Um, so we're going to see the, the hypostatic union in the sense that both the deity and the humanity of the Son um, 66 times Paul called Jesus the Christ, right? Christ meaning the Messiah. So he, in chapter 1, verse 4, Jesus is given the messianic title, Son of God. He is called Lord at least 37 times. Um, so we're going to see that Paul clearly states that Jesus and God the Father are one and the same, right? Jesus is the messianic Son. Um, and he was, was confirmed and will be confirmed by his resurrection. So being fully God, we're going to see that Jesus lived a sinless life. The gospel obviously is centered on the person and work of Jesus Christ. The God, the Father's merciful act was giving his son so that we could be reconciled back to him, right? That's the, that's the benefit that God offered his son for us to be rectified back to God, reconciled, right? The Son was sent by the Father as a sacrifice, and we saw in Isaiah 53 that it pleased God to harm His Son, right? It pleased Him because it allowed a reconciliation for mankind to be back with God. Those are odd topics or odd ideas to think about, but that's, that's what it is, right? So Father, the Father also predestined those who would believe in His Son. In John 17, we see that Jesus prays to the Father that for those whom he has given to him, right? Um, as for his humanity, uh, the Messiah is compared both to Adam and to Abraham. Um, we're going to see he's described as being the seed of David, um, which is, again, his humanity and his divinity. Another uh, messianic title is the son of David. Um, so we're going to see in chapter 3, uh, that Paul will make the very important point that death, the death of Christ, the God-man, provided the atonement for humanity. That sacrifice provided the ability for us to be reconciled with God. And then four is pneumatology. Um, the Holy Spirit isn't just a presence or a power, but a person of the triune Godhead. Um, so we're going to see that Romans will sort of differentiate the Holy Spirit's power and his personhood. So personhood meaning a personality, right? It's uh, 
So he possesses intellect, emotion, will. Um, and we're going to see that, that uh, Romans will discuss those attributes um, of the Holy Spirit um, as being of a personality. Um, he also um, portrays the Holy Spirit's intellect. Um, it's an active agent or active uh, in our lives, our spiritual lives. So as we receive, the sanctification process is by the Holy Spirit in our lives, right? So he's actively involved in our personal lives. The Spirit bears witness of the Messiah. Um, he leads the children of God. He prays on behalf of God's people. So all three aspects of the Trinity are presented in the Gospel, are in the Book of Romans. Um, and we'll see that the Holy Spirit is a provider of spiritual gifts as well. Okay, then Satanology, doctrine of Satan. So Romans mentions Satan in, uh, in chapter 16. And it's based upon the um, first messianic prophecy of Gen in Genesis 3. Um, shows that the final, the final defeat of Satan was not at the cross, right? Because Satan is still alive and well right now. And he's active, and he's actually the ruler of this age, this cosmos, right? Um, so the final defeat was not at the cross, but it will be a defeat, and that's at the end of the thousand-year reign, right? So it will happen. Uh, doctrine of man, which is anthropology. Um, so we're going to see the mention of the creation and fall of Adam. Uh, Paul compares the first Adam with the last Adam, which is the Messiah, and then it will deal with the glorification of man. And then seven is homartiology, and that's the doctrine of sin, right? We're going to see man's original sin. He's going to list several acts of sin. Um, God's wrath is being poured out against mankind because of its sinfulness, and it's just. In Revelation, we see when, when God's wrath is being poured out in the tribulation, that the heavenly hosts declare him to be just, right? Just. He's just, right? He's holy. He's holy. He's holy that this wrath that is being poured out is just. It's justifiable, and it's justified in what he's doing, right? What was the, it's not on the paper, seven. Yeah, no, it's not. What's, what is, what's the word you said? Oh. Spell it. Eleven. Is it twice on there? A-R-P-I-O-L-A-T-Y. Where was that after? That's seven, right? Oh, seven's not, oh, seven, yeah. it goes from six to eight. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Yes, martiology, the doctrine of sin. Um, and, and we're all familiar with that. <laughs> okay, are we good? Eight, soteriology is doctrine of salvation. And like we already went over, there, we're going to see the tenses or the aspects of salvation, justification, sanctification, glorification. Um, these are all legal terms, right? And we'll, we'll see how they are legal terms and they are applied. Um, so it's justification is contrasted with condemnation. Those are legal terms. When, when a criminal is condemned, right, they are, they are going to be put in judgment. They're going to be put in punishment. But when a person is justified of justification, they are declared righteous and they are acquitted, right? So these things are legal transactions that we have received from the Lord. Um, so we're going to see that the, the cost of this salvation, however, wasn't free. It was by the blood of Christ, right? And that salvation is by grace through faith alone. Uh, Israelology, number nine, or 
yes, yes. Um, like I said, we're gonna we're gonna see how um, Israel is a stumbling block right now, or they're in a stumbling position right now, but they are not unchanged as God's chosen people, right? They are still God's chosen people, um, and so He's going to elaborate on national salvation of Israel, um, that thousand-year reign. Um, will be discussed as well. And then 10, ecclesiology. That's the doctrine of the church. Um, so we're going to see uh, how, remember, how Jews and Gentiles can get along, basically, and be in the believers of body, uh, in the body of Christ, right? Gentile believers become partakers of the Jewish spiritual blessings. Therefore, really, Paul is declaring that we are indebted to the Jews. Because of their rejection, we now are coming into uh, we're the wild olive branches that are coming in to be grafted with them, right? And then eschatology is a doctrine of the last days. So we're going to see pers personal eschatology as well as general eschatology. So it, talking about the future of the soul for you personally, and then the future of the world. Um, so the judgment seat of Christ, national salvation of Israel, the messianic kingdom, and then the final defeat of Satan will also be touched. And then finally, our outline... Um, are, are, it's going to be on major sort of themes. It's five parts. As you can see, we're going to see justification, sanctification, glorification, God's relationship to Israel, and then the application. We kind of already went over those things. Um, uh, let's see. So, at the end of Romans 8, we're going to see that Paul reaches a crucial conclusion, right? God has justified those who believe. So as the next step, so now that you're justified, God sanctifies the believer and the word of God or the work of God conforms them more to the image of his son. Um, and so we're going to see that that justification and that sanctification and then our future glorification is assured because the one doing the work is not us. It's him, right? Doing it in us. The only thing we can do is quench it but nothing can separate you from the love of God. Nothing. Not yourself. Not even your quenching, right? Nothing can separate the believer from the love of God. Nothing in heaven, nothing on earth, nothing below the earth, nothing a believer can do will separate him from God's love because it's not done by you. It's done by him and his faithfulness, right? Amen. So that's the high point of theology. That's sort of the climax of what Paul discusses in chapters 1 through 8. And so... Like I said, it would be interesting, normally, and the book of Colossians is this way, I'm sorry, the book of Ephesians is this way, normally going, okay, you received all these things, now what do you do? Well, Paul takes a break, and he discusses 9 through 11, which is Israel, because the promises of God, that God gave to Israel are not nulled and void, they have to be fulfilled. So he has to take that break to say, look, I told you all these great promises you were going to receive as Gentiles, but I got to go back to Israel because they are still going to receive their promises, right? And you can, because God is going to continue to give them their promises and be faithful to them, you can rest assured that they're going to be for you too, right? That you're, these promises are going to be there. So that's sort of the whole reason why he's in, interjecting that part there. Um, we better end there. Okay. <laughs> huh? We did it. Well, there's still more, but <laughs> never can do it. All right, so let's pray. Heavenly Father, we bow our hearts before you, Lord, as we prepare to study your book, the book that you gave us, uh, the, the uh, formal treatise of the gospel that you gave 
to mankind through the Apostle Paul. We're grateful that you chose Paul to bring us this. 2,000 years later, we can learn about it, Lord. We're grateful, Lord, that you are the justifier, you are the sanctifier, and you are ultimately our glorifier of us. And it's all based upon your faithfulness and your loyalty, not us. And we are eternally grateful for that, Lord. We're thankful that you chose us and that we responded positively to you, that we are in the sanctification process now, moment by moment. We pray that as we study this book, that it would go through us, Lord, that we would be cleansed by it, that we would rightly divide and discern right from wrong, true from false, bad from good, Lord, that we would have a, a, an understanding of who you are, not, not uh, a, a, an idea of what we think you are, but that we would uh, align ourselves to who you really are. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.